If you are uh, new to Westtown Church or maybe you haven't been here a while, uh, you might not recognize me, but I'm relatively new. My name is Dwight Dunn, and I am the interim senior pastor here at Westtown Church, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you and the congregation, and we have really appreciated my family and I, the warm welcome that you've all given us. So thank you very much. In the last few weeks, we've been going through uh, the book of First Thessalonians, and we're taking a look at what it means to follow Jesus Christ together as the body of Christ. And uh, this morning, I want us to take a, a we're going to be in chapter two. We, last week, we took a look at what it means uh, to be the church together. Uh, this week, I want to uh, sort of expand on that idea and take a look at uh, what it, the kingdom of God entails. And we'll find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in a couple of minutes. But many um, Christians in the West uh, embrace a view of Christianity that a friend of mine refers to as lifeboat Christianity. And what lifeboat Christianity means is where it views Christianity from the perspective that the Christian life consists primarily of a relationship with Jesus so that we can maintain our own sense of personal well-being and using the instructions of his word uh, in order to try to help other people uh, come to know Jesus by spreading uh, the good news. This view of uh, Christianity is, is very individualistic. It's very pragmatic. It views the Christian life pretty much as uh, Jesus being our rescuer uh, from our, our personal trials and our sin, and uh, his word guiding us through all of the, the tempests and the difficulties that life presents to us. Um, we kind of, in this view of Christianity, we sort of take the view that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And our job as followers of Jesus is to urge and to invite me- as many as we can onto our little lifeboat that we can uh, weather the, temp- uh, the, uh, the, the, the difficult waves and the problems that life brings us together and throw out as many life preservers to as many other people as possible. And together, we will hopefully reach the shores of heaven together one day. Now, there is a sense where there is a part of what is said there is true. But it is such a small part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to follow him together as the family of God. Because such a view, such a lifeboat view of Christianity that is popularized by so many in the Western church fails to present the big, the glorious, the overarching view of what the Christian life is. And so in many respects, it's very shallow, it's very self-centered, and it is rather anemic. It doesn't carry much influence in our world today. So what I hope to do today is for us to broaden our vision, to gain a greater understanding of Jesus Christ and his glory reigning in heaven and its implications for us as his followers and the world who we receive our messages from, what we determine right and wrong from, how we uh, form relationships, how we interact with other people, what the knowledge of spending eternity with Christ 
means as a difference for us today. So if that sounds inviting to you, if a more glorious view of Jesus and his majesty and its implications for daily life is something that interests you, then I invite you to follow with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning as I read God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So as not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Becoming followers of Jesus Christ involves that glorious personal relationship with God where we know that our sins are forgiven, that God loves us and we live daily in his presence. But there is so much more to the Christian life because we see that Christ's good news changes our mindset about all of life, the way in which we view the world, the way in which we answer the big life questions that we ourselves ask and our culture asks is radically different is transformed and is thoroughly changed as a result of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we see in this passage of scripture that Paul presents um, to us a description of the message that he delivered to the Thessalonians. He urged them to follow Jesus Christ, to embrace the good news of the gospel. He encouraged them to live godly lives worthy of the calling that they had received from God. 
But Paul's knowledge of God, of God's word, thoroughly shaped and transformed the way in which we, he viewed life. We see this brought out in the passage in the way in which Paul conducted his ministry. Now, you might be tempted to think, okay, Dwight, what you're saying is nice and everything, but that applied to a Paul who was an apostle, and I'm not an apostle, so this really doesn't apply to me, does it? Well, it really does. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we have all of us a primary calling. Our fundamental primary calling is to follow Jesus Christ and to reach and equip others with the good news. That applies to everybody, whether apostle or pastor or worship team member or construction worker or finance worker or accountant. Your primary calling in life is to reach and equip people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, your secondary calling is your vocation. It is your job. It is the gifts that God has given you that you employ in service where you earn a living and you support your family, but it is the primary stage in which you carry out your first calling. In the case of an apostle or, an, or a pastor, for instance, our primary calling and our secondary calling are the same. My job as a pastor is to do what everybody's primary calling is. You have an additional challenge of juggling both things together at once and some of the challenges that it presents to you. So what I'm about to share isn't just a description of an apostle. It's not just a, a description of a pastor. It is to be the view of every believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And we're intrigued as we look at this passage and we see how the gospel transformed every aspect of Paul's life. For instance, in this passage, uh, the, the verses are going to be back up here again for you, so you can re reference to what I'm saying. I'm not going to reread the, the, first the second chapter here. But Paul was willing to embrace hardship. He was willing to suffer and to face opposition. That's in verse 2. You'll see a little bit later, it's in verses 14 through 18. He lived and he spoke boldly and courageously despite persecution and suffering and opposition in verse 2. Now, if you remember Paul's description of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, he described himself as being weak, and he was not really up for the task of, of being uh, an orator that many of the, the, the Greeks and the Romans of the day held as being one who would speak from authority. He felt very inadequate but he was able to speak boldly and courageously. He governed how they performed their work and ministry by the word of God. They rejected using the worldly practices of their day to accomplish their mission and their goals. In other words, they did not speak in error or impurity or deceit or from any form of personal gain or greed. Verses 3 and 5. They viewed their lives as a trust given to them by God to be lived for his glory, verse 4. They were not people pleasers, but they lived to please God who tests the heart and to whom one day they must stand before and give an account as judge. They sacrificed their rightful wages as apostles 
so as not to burden the Thessalonians, but they made tents with their own hands in order to support themselves. Verses 6 and 9. They lovingly served other people for the good of those people, not because of whatever good they might get in return. They loved even when it was, was not reciprocated. Verses 7 through 9. They governed their morality and their conduct by God's standards of right and wrong and not the practices of their day. And they urged the Thessalonians to work in a manner worthy of God. They received God's word for the truth that it is, rejecting the life views of their day in verse 13. They entrusted their lives to God the judge who at the last day would vindicate them and right all wrongs. Verse 16. Do you see how thoroughly the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, transformed Paul's very perspective of life? Life was to be lived in stewardship to God, knowing that his life was not his own. Do we remember scripture says uh, that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Paul realized that he wasn't to conduct his ministry according to the customs and the fashions of the day that may have been very successful in other arenas, but he was supposed to do it according to the word of God. He was a man who was governed by a firm conviction of what was right or wrong, not based upon the philosophies and the changing winds of his day, but upon the very foundation of the law of God. And he sought to govern his life and his conduct accordingly. He lived realizing that this life is just temporary, that our eternal home is in heaven. And so he did not cling to the promises of this world, like we sang a little while ago and Paul pointed out, to live with satisfaction based upon what this world has to offer, but the satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ and delighting ourselves in him. God's purpose for the world is that his invisible kingdom become more visible, not only in individual human hearts, but in every aspect of society. As believers with the vision of the glory of Christ go into their respective secondary callings to carry out their primary calling of reaching and keeping people with the good news of Jesus Christ, the very structures of our society will be transformed. No longer will we be looking to government or education or arts and entertainment or business or religion or family to satisfy us. But we would be looking to Christ and his kingdom and seeking to influence those structures in our culture so that they would come under the influences of Jesus Christ. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. And he was a bishop in the ancient city of Smyrna. And for many years, he served the church faithfully. But in his 86th year of life, things took a very fateful turn. The city was stirred up in opposition to Polycarp. And despite his reluctance, 
friends persuaded him to flee the city. And so he ran to a farm outside the city and people were pursuing him. He got word of it. So he left that farm and he went to another farm and his pursuers came to the first farm and they tortured a servant there until he disclosed Polycarp's location. And so the authorities went and they got Polycarp and they brought him back to the city and they put him into the arena where the uh, people of the city were crying out that he'd be fed to the lions. And then they changed that. And they said, no, don't feed him to the lions. Burn him at the stake. So sticks were gathered around a pole. Polycarp was bound and the sticks were set on fire and Polycarp died. Now, let me ask you, why would a magistrate pursue an 86-year-old man to put him to death? Was it because he was going around telling people that if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven? No. (laughs) Decidedly, no. Now, certainly that was part of his message, but it was so much more. You see, Polycarp's story reveals the heart of the matter for us. The magistrate said to him, What harm is there, Polycarp, and you saying, Caesar is Lord? Swear by the fortunes of Caesar. Take an oath of allegiance to him, and I will release you. And what has become Polycarp's very famous answer, he replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has been faithful to me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, Polycarp and the early Christians understood things that many in the Western church today fail to grasp in the terms of the fullness of the gospel. The good news of the kingdom is not just about a gift of eternal life. It is certainly includes that, but it is so much more than that. It's about a change of allegiance. It's about a change of where, what authority do we go to to base our lives on? to view this world, to know what is right and wrong, how to conduct ourselves in our relationships and our roles. What promises are we living by to bring satisfaction in this life? Will we go by what this world says? Or will we go and follow the allegiance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Lordship to Caesar, allegiance to Caesar, was the fundamental assumption upon which Roman life was built. For Polycarp and other Christians of his day to say that Jesus is Lord was seen as subversive and a desire to overthrow the government. However, an individualized, a privatized gospel that only views the Christian life as a lifeboat that we sit in until we can get to the other shore seeking to bring others with us doesn't require you to change your allegiance at all. You can love the gods of this age and you can love God and you can love Jesus too. But the ancient Romans who demanded that Polycarp die had it right when they screamed and murderous hatred that he be put to death. He is a destroyer of our gods. Yes, 
The good news is about eternal life. It is about the forgiveness of sins. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is so much more. It is about embracing a new king. It's about swearing new allegiances, not to follow our own desires, not to follow what the philosophies of this world is, but we swear by the grace of God, by the power of God, that we will follow our new king, Jesus. It is about heralding the death of the gods of our age. It is about telling our world that the things that they have set their hopes on are false and empty that will ultimately lead to their ruin. And they need not only a savior, but they need new allegiances as well. Christ's good news should radically change your mindset about life. But in addition to that, Christ's good news changes your motivation for life. In verses 3 and 4, Paul mentions that the reason in which they ministered was not to please people, but was to please God. In verse 16, he mentions that part of the reason in which they ministered was that the Gentiles might be saved. They had compassion for people who were lost and in bondage in their sin. And so out of a desire to bring glory to God and the conversion of the lost, they risked it all. They put it all on the line. They were put out of the Jewish synagogues. They were excommunicated. They traveled the known world. If you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 2 Corinthians between chapters 10 and chapter 12, you'll read about the hardships and the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and being left for dead. Why did Paul do those things? It was because he was motivated to please God, whatever the cost may be to him, and so that he might be of benefit in the lives of other people. And so too in our lives. We face challenges, we face hardships for sure, but what is going to be our motivation in the way in which we live and the way in which we navigate those trials and those hardships that we face? Is it going to be an insistence upon me and my rights? Is it going to be on me being satisfied and being fulfilled? Is it going to be us looking out for number one? Or is it going to be that we are going to live for the pleasure of God and for the good of other people as we seek to love them in the gospel. That is our calling. That is our expansive view of life. That is worth something giving ourselves for, and not the empty promises of this world. Also, we see that Christ's good news changes our manner of life. We mentioned a few of these before. Paul goes from being bold to courageous. He's able to encourage his young companion, Timothy, not to be timid and afraid, but to be bold in the power of the Spirit. He is somebody who is able to operate from a realm of purity of conduct and being upright in the way in which he conducts his ministry and not giving in to the practices of the world around him that everybody said, ah, what's the matter with taking a little money for yourself. Paul, everybody else does it. You should do it too. What's wrong with doing this, that, or the other thing? 
God's a forgiving God. He'll forgive you. He understands. Go ahead, give in and do it. No, Paul was intent on pleasing God and not hindering his witness to others and his love for them that he conducted himself in purity as Christ would have wanted. He was engaged in selfless sacrifice. Time and again, we read in this passage of of the suffering and the conflict and the oppression and the persecution that they endured. In fact, they even willingly set aside their rights to receive an income as apostles and pastors to the church so as not to burden the church. So radical was their idea and their approach to life that they were willing to do so. They were gentle rather than harsh in their conduct. They were confident. They were full of faith. They knew that the word of God did not come to the Thessalonians in vain and that God's word would do its work in the believers in verses 1 through 13. And therefore they labored, knowing that the promise of God would stand full that his word would not return void, that God was at work and God was going to use their labors, no matter how feeble, to accomplish the task of extending the good news of Jesus. And finally, we see that Christ's good news changes your means for life. In verse 4, Paul writes, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, I'm pretty sure that the experience of most people is that we have all had bosses at some point in our career who required things of us, but then did not give us what we needed to do the job. I had one of my first real jobs after graduating from college I was given a task of, of reducing employee turnover by 50% within six months. But I was given nothing to help make that happen. I was given no money to offer an increase of salaries. I was not given any means of increasing the benefits to employees so that they would stick around. Nothing. I just magically had to make it happen. God's not like that at all. Our Lord is rich and generous, and he supplies whatever it is that we need. Paul was commissioned by God. His ministry was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and he knew confidently that God would give him whatever he needed to fulfill that ministry. And so it is in whatever role or responsibility or relationship that we face, whatever God is calling us to, we can be assured that God will provide. Oh, granted, it seldom comes on our timetable. It often does not come in the manner that we expect it to come. And sometimes it may even bum us out when it comes. But know this for sure, that God is faithful and he will provide. And so as we look at the Christian life then, we see that yes, absolutely, it involves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is so much more than that. It is seeing Jesus in his glory reigning over all things. It is seeing that Jesus Christ is working in this world, accomplishing his will and his purpose. It envisions us 
seeing ourselves as being called by God to reach and equip people with the good news of Jesus Christ, confident and assured that he will provide for us all that we need for godliness and life. Let us pray together.